Welcome back to another episode of Give and Take with G. Allen Podcast. I do, and I do it well because you encourage me. You come back to join me, and thank you again for listening in. I'm not going to hold you for too long because Jamar and I have a good talk revolving around our thoughts about Black History Month, what it looks like to us, what it means to us, and how conversations change as we grow and as we go into adulthood. It's our responsibility to be arbiters of the Black perspective as we tell our truths, the experiences of our ancestors, and the full history of American history with the incorporation of Black people beyond just being enslaved persons. So sit back relax give us uh, some ideas we listen we appreciate you listening in we give something maybe you'll take something away as well here's a conversation with jamar thanks again jamar for hopping on uh like i was just saying a few seconds ago the feedback and people have really enjoyed our conversation so far and i feel that um one thing is you know I like to have a conversation with a little bit of a theme. And I think with uh, February coming up, Black History Month, that's really a great opportunity for us to kind of just get a little bit of thought as to like, what does Black History Month mean to us? Like what it's meant in the past, what it's Mm -hmm. meant, you know, as we gotten a little bit older, but more specifically, what does it mean now? I think that how I viewed Black History Month has shifted based on just a little bit of maybe America's racial reckoning. And mm-hmm. um, I, I, I wanted to balance that off, you know, it's always great to have these conversations with elders, but you know, I think you're one of my peers that I really respect your opinion. I want, and I think other people would respect what you have to think on those topics because, you know, I don't have any plan in regards to it. It's more just like, just think about it. Like, you know, growing up Black History Month, it comes around once a year, I think about, George Washington Carver, I think about uh, Martin Luther King, I think about hearing about the uh, Red Tails during World War II, and I think about really uplifting, you know, o- overcoming the discrimination or the simple figureheads. We didn't really get into it. Maybe, maybe you could talk a little bit about what your experience was like. What did Black History Month mean to you growing up when you heard about it, when we talked about it, when that became the focus of some of the classes when we were growing up. Hmm. That's a very interesting question, but thank you for the intro. Um, I guess to make it slightly topical and current, I'm going to quote uh, Senate Majority Leader Ms. McConnell in his oh, recent Lord. statement where he told that Black Americans vote in as many of a percentage as, did he say just Americans or real Americans? Either uh, way, basically his even if his denotation was Americans, his connotation was real Americans. Mm -hmm. So in the light of that, and just basically just being blunt, we know that that's not even the dog whistle anymore. Apparently people are speaking freely on how they feel nowadays. I think that it is, again, it's a good call out because it gives history as from our side, from our perspective, our side of the equation. Um, There's always the quote that history is written by the winners. And at this moment in time, it feels like a lot of people are rewriting and or censoring history. We hear about all the, the books that are being banned, books that are being burned um, currently in different states in the South. People are pushing back against teaching other frameworks of history. So growing up, I feel like I appreciate Black History Month in terms of just being able to hear things from the other, from our side, from our perspective, being able to give some of that focus. I feel like there's a lot of things that we learned growing up that 
as I've gotten into my late twenties and early thirties now, I'm finding a lot of people did not know and or they barely, barely knew it or they got told it in the very misconstrued way. And Mm. I I think my perspective was, I thought that everyone knew this because that's how we learn a lot of this. And we didn't have the the luxury of not being able to pay attention because we have to know our history to be able to know both what we came from, who we came from, whose we are, and being able to maneuver in like modern society and modern day life. So I guess it comes from the privilege of being able to find out about it early and the luxury or not having the luxury to be able to ignore it. I feel like I do value Black History Month, even though there's of course issues and this perspective you can give in the light that when people say, oh, why don't we have a, a White History Month or why don't we celebrate you guys throughout the year? Well, apparently not everyone thinks that we are like actual Americans to be celebrated and talked about. Yeah, no, it's, it's really weird. Like you said, Mitch McConnell saying the quiet part out loud, which just doesn't blow your mind. It blows your mind that he said it. It's not that he thinks it, it's that he actually said it out loud because I feel that the moment we, Growing up, when you hear, you know, it's Black History Month and you think like, why didn't we hear about that before? I think I remember, I'm not sure when it was specifically, but that one year we finally got to the civil rights chapter of the history class. Like we've, we've done early, we've done world history, we've done U.S. history, and then eventually sometime in like 11th grade, we finally get to the 1960s. And that's the only time I ever heard about the civil rights struggle, even though you know, America honestly has been dealing with civil rights since the early 1800s. So it's not like that's anything new. It's just the fact that you know, that's how we identify. We identify as this one specific thing or this one specific person, this one specific action. And, and I, but you are right. It, it's great to have that opportunity to focus. Like I really did take pride in that. I did notice that you know, certain TV shows, cartoons would put a little bit more emphasis and uh, effort in saying, you know, there is not not just like recognizing that the month is here, but you would always emphasize, you know, the pride of being Black. I think that, you know, you and I, part of our identity is being Black. And, and I think that when you recognize that, you know, Black History Month points out our history or the history that we identify with, you know, more directly or as directly as we do as Americans, we can directly, we connect with the part that we're black. And you say that part of the history is only taught during this time of the year. And it's really is concerning because it's not even the victors that are rewriting history. It's the losers. It's the individuals that lost elections or the individuals that lost one major election and have the rebound, the recoil has led to all types of elections being lost. No, most commonly from our home state of Virginia, looking at uh, Governor Yoinkin, where he implemented the uh, ban on uh, uh, critical race theory uh, being taught in the public school system, which, you know, Damar, what, did you have any classes in college where you recall like critical race theory being taught? Because from my memory, I remember maybe three politics courses where critical race theory had its own chapter, but it was like in the middle of three to five other theories. So I didn't really think about it as, oh, some revolutionary thought. It was more like, oh, this is how I, as a black person, envision the world 
through viewing the world through the lens of how race is implied. That's how I always do. So I was thinking, well, thank God the rest of these guys are having the opportunity to be more critical and think about the world in the way that I perceive it. Um, do you recall uh, any classes where that, that subject matter, critical race theory came up and like, what were your thoughts when you heard about it? If so, you had any. To be honest, I feel like I've never heard of it until maybe last year. I think that, and to give background, I did my undergrad um, major in American studies and my mm -hmm. concentration was race and ethnicity. So I not only took classes about black and African history and African-American history, but I also took classes for, for Latinos, for Asians and a lot of other like kind of pseudo adjacent stuff in architecture, classes on demographics, class, especially combining it with my urban planning minor, a lot of classes in planning and the history of planning, which has its own racial problems and histories and reconciliations that it has to make. But I never heard uh, anything about critical race theory. So to me, even like hearing about that and that being a problem was confusing because I never have heard that term before. Um, I don't think that was, I don't know how recent of a thing it is, but with me taking the majority of my classes between 2009 and 2012, I think mm -hmm. maybe that labeling just wasn't applied, but maybe the actual framework itself was. So maybe it's just a, a kind of issue of marketing. I feel like we need to actually get a lot of these movements like a marketing department so they can be able to better handle this. To be right. honest, I feel like a lot of far right conservative groups have better marketing strategies because they make everything sound so great off the top. And right. everything, like they try to make everything on like, everything sounds so formal educational in a way that it can easily be misconstrued and flipped out. So my critique would be, hey, we need some marketing gurus here to actually be able to make this sound better. Um, but no, I, I don't think I heard of that framework, even though I feel like some of my classes may have taught a framework that's similar. Mm -hmm. So I can't really, and even today, I don't fully understand what, how the framework of race theory is supposed to be. Um, people try to dilute it, saying that it's just teaching uh, American history as it actually happened, plus yeah. kind of whitewashing American history and actually adding like the racial components of how certain things have happened in American history. But for me, I feel like that's just the general education that I've gotten based on my major and minor combination when I was undergrad, in undergrad. Yeah, it sounds like from what you described it just now that you looked at history through the perspectives or the experiences of different demographics so in a sense you know that is it you're being taught in a way where critical race theory the idea that we are viewing things through the perspectives of different groups based on race it, it played it played a role in how you were taught so from how i would view it when i saw a chapter on critical race theory in my politics club courses it was specifically saying in the 60s and 70s like this we are we're just more actively considering viewing specifically in the law viewing the law how race implied or may have played an influence and in like how certain legal proceedings you know whether it be through arrest or it be through um uh arrests or sentencings or punishments considering how race played a role in that it, it ultimately it comes from the origins of it came from how uh, the law was interpreted uh, based on the perspective of race, how people were being punished based on race, how people were being viewed or um, policed or, 
you know, governed based on race. Um, so it was never so much that like, it was a conscious thing. It was more of how at that particular time period or during these particular time periods, how the theory was being developed. And then later on, we would analyze things and say, this is how we could uh, analyze it using this theory. It, it's, it's so frustrating because it is a rather complex, uh, it's a very complex topic that not a lot of people have exposure to. And it's just, but because it's complex, it's easy to demonize. Um, I actually remember in undergrad, I, I had a WG, a woman, gender studies, women, gender and sexuality course I took where I specifically said, you know, like you said, marketing. Feminism has bad marketing because it had chose to use a word with an ism at the end because Americans are terrified of isms. They're terrified of racism, sexism, fascism, socialism, communism. Um, they're terrified, terrified of a lot of isms. So when you call something a feminism and not a lot of people are very clear on what that means, it's really, it's bad marketing. So the same way that, you know, you said the uh, Republican party is good at marketing in a sense to galvanize or use fear tactics. Um, the more progressive uh, policies or more progressive ideologies can use some rebranding to improve going forward. And I don't know, it's gonna be very interesting. I'm actually, a part of the reason why I wanted to have the conversation with you today is thinking, you know, going forward how is it that we can like continue to you know advocate for teach and engage in these conversations for black history month because if we're looking at a scenario where um virginia is trying to remove critical race theory from the public school system which it it means nothing it's removing nothing at that point but what they're trying to do is they're trying to eliminate books that speak about slavery or look at you know, how slaveholders or eugen uh, eugenesis or uh, Jim Crow reconstruction there, all those different periods, they're trying to erase the sting of it. They're trying to make it less personal so that people don't think about it critically. Um, if that's the case, have you, have you ever given any thought as to how you may be more engaged or like what, what you might have to do in order to still stay connected to that history so that you're not so like when Black History Month comes along or when we're talking about our connection to this country in a critical sense or being, uh, you know, being honest or being accurate, what, what can you do going forward to like, you know, make sure that we're not allowing ourselves at least to just uh, fall to the wayside uh, like, like the school systems are being uh, impacted? I think that to be able to move forward. And it, it's interesting. I feel like there is a fatigue about talking about this issue. So mm -hmm. the first thing to be able to do to move forward is to be able to find a way around the fatigue. Because even though the issues are still there, people are tired of hearing about them with the current lingo and the current language that we're using. Because a lot of it, I feel it was coming from like an academic sense or coming from a a local sense or almost like a patri uh, uh, patri patronizing sense. Mm. So now when you say one, fatigue, are you are you talking about like the speakers uh, tell, talking about this or the audience? And who is the who are who would you describe as the other of those parties? So speakers, well, yes and no. So speakers, again, those activists and speakers who 
who will abs absolutely go to war on it, will constantly talk about it, who make the bread and butter talking about it. Again, back when the pandemic was originally happening, there was a there was a time where I thought I was just going to jump all the way into DEI training and just go all the way into that direction. I think I actually like applied for some DEI jobs and I think I did get like one or two round interviews, but never went past that. So there's a there's still money to be made in terms of talking about that. So I think the actual speakers who are interested and engaged and have a stake on it um, will be fine. I think the audience, the general audience is the 80% of Americans who think that there's somewhere somewhere close to being in the middle. So one or two, um, uh, what's the word for it? One or two uh, derivatives away from being quote unquote central. So I, in the center or in the those centrists who think that they're trying to help and think that there's some level of compromise when actually there isn't um, a level of compromise that can be accomplished because everything's pulling so far to one direction. Um, this is the second time I've talked about this week, but I can't remember the name of the concept. There is a concept where, um, I forget the, the theory of it, but there's a concept when it comes to American politics where um, American politics works almost like a, a gear with a mechanism where it keeps turning to one side and it consciously, it incrementally consciously turns to one side, but because there's like a level that sticks to the gears, it can't go back. So every time there's a gradual slight push to the right, there's yeah. never a gradual slight push back to the left. I'll have to find the concept of it again because it's a really interesting concept. But I think that because that slowly is happening, the majority of people who think they're centrist are actually more closer to the right than they actually are. So they right. are completely tired of hearing about it from the sense of um, this academic, liberal, left-wing sense. I think the best way to go about it is to talk about it completely from a, almost from the individual humanistic perspective, if that makes sense. So the best ways that I've been able to have conversations with people who are willing to listen has been being able to tell people my experiences and connect it to hopefully any of their experiences. I tell them about how I grew up, um, my family being military, how I grew up in undergrad, being the being first generation undergrad, being first generation grad school, my experiences working in private, my experiences working in nonprofit, things that I've seen growing up, um, things that I felt, how I've experienced and and how I've been able to process everything. So while that might not necessarily make that shift, at the very least, it does create that bridge and saying, okay, I'm at least level setting with you saying individual to individual, individual to group, there has to be a level of authenticity. And I think some level of empathy that does have to be given. I know there's a lot of people who say, oh, I don't have time and or I don't feel like I need to be teaching these people how they should respect me or how they should interact with me, yada, yada, yada. Yes, you can say that, but the counterpoint is they can say, if you don't have time to teach, I don't have time to learn or I don't have care right. to learn. Yeah, no, um, and that's that's kind of something that I've had to come to terms with myself because definitely at the height of the racial reckoning in America, I specifically was like, I was on my horse, I was on my soapbox speaking to a lot of people, having these conversations one by one or as large of an audience I can get to listen. And after about a month of that, two months of that, I shut myself down for a month and I really haven't like gotten back into that at all on any level. And I, but I recognize like, you know, 
there was so much rage and frustration in that period of time. I didn't really know what to do with it. And I feel like, you know, at one point I had to realize, you know, what good does this, this anger and this frustration do for me personally? And ultimately it doesn't do anything because what I'm looking for is some type of, when you're dealing with feelings of rage you're almost looking like you want people to suffer you want retribution and that's realistically not going to benefit anyone it's actually you know a part of what is creating a lot of this fear and hesitation amongst the majority they are concerned about the idea that if they were to lose their sense of superiority in society all the discrimination throughout history all the uh you know, unfairness that is currently seen is going to come right back at them. And that's, that's really the fear they feel. And the thing is, you know, there's no, the unfortunate thing is, you know, there's not a level of fairness where you can say an eye for an eye in this situation. You have to figure out a way where you can recover from those feelings and, you know, come to a conclusion that is prosperous for all versus like, uh, no, 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 it's our turn. There's none of that. You can have that kind of retribution or you're just going to have a continuous cycle. But more importantly, as you said, um, this the mechanism is going to keep shifting slowly to the right because they're afraid of a scenario where this progressive left version creates a scenario where they're going to suffer. They don't want that. So they're just going to keep edging further and further to the right, which is, is, is very frustrating. It's very stressful. But you know, it's a really good um, description you had there. If you could share with me whenever you figure it out, it could like that, that just like that, that's spotless. That's a, a spot on what it's, what's happening right now. Yeah, I got it from a video. So I have to rewatch the video to be able to figure out what the name of it is, but definitely we'll share that. And speaking on one of the concepts that you talked about, people being afraid of this racial karma that they might impose because of the way that they've treated people or they feel that their ancestors have treated people. It kind of goes with what Trevor Noah said with one of his behind the scenes in terms of there being some type of racial reconciliation, whereas, and I had to be very specific in how I frame this because people try to use this their way. There does have to be a level of forgiveness about what happened, but that forgiveness doesn't mean that anything is forgotten, nor Absolutely that there not. won't be no. any accountability. I think people think when they talk about forgiveness that there isn't any accountability that is held with forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Whereas that forgiveness is, we understand what happened. We don't want that to happen going forward. We don't hold your generation particularly responsible for the things that have happened in the past unless the things are actively happening. Again, there's a difference between developers only building, um, there's a difference between uh, historic redlining and developers today actively only building luxury uh, buildings and appealing to uh, the expectation that housing is an investment and that's only ever go up. Those are two different things that do need to be addressed. But in that accountability, there has to be the acknowledgement that, hey, this happened, this still has impacts on people and there's still things that are happening on people. If you want to be able to make this right, then you do have to, at some point, stop, basically stop the, you have to break up the positive reinforcement loops and the cycles that are happening that are still impacting these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you definitely have to break that cycle, break the chain because it, it, because we, not just because 
that's the only way to see the prosper of everybody. But also we don't live in a society where there's going to be a violent or a successful violent uprising where, you know, the uh, shun minority will be able to overcome the majority in a sense where that, that um, the consequences of that will see anything prosperous. So we're, we're trying to avoid a World War III scenario in Eastern Europe. Um, and that, that kind of just shows like, it feels like we're edging closer to that, but in reality, you know, that's the last thing that we can afford. That's the last thing that society is prepared for. And we as a society just don't know how to function in a space where we're having all out war like that. And that just can't be the case here. I think that, I think that valid, that, that concern is not, is invalidated from the majority where they fear some, they're fearful of this 13% of the, uh, of the population that's going to, you know, seek some type of violent retribution from them. But, but they are, but it's only valid in the sense that that frustration is there, but they're trying to ignore it. And I, I don't know where the idea that forgiveness equals forgetting, like that's something that is broken with a lot of communities. I think that people have to understand that forgiveness is as much for the individual forgiving as it is for, you know, it's not to alleviate your guilt, is to help the person who is suffering, you know, move past it. You know, I have forgiven people in my past, but it's not to say that I have forgotten how they treated me. It's just that in this moment, I I recognize that this is this is this thing that you could not you could not help doing what you did to me because that is where you were in your life, and I forgive you for that so that I can get on so that I don't have to feel this rage and frustration. And it's going to be interesting going forward, thinking about how we can get to a space, you know, talking with individuals and, you know, how, how do you feel in, you know, taking on that personal, um, that personal duty, that personal task of like having these uh, individual conversations? Do you ever feel overwhelmed or do you ever feel like it is a burden on some level? I don't. But I think that's also just because I enjoy engaging in the conversation. Mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, maybe it's also because I haven't had enough conversations with people who are actively wanting to in my life and or point guns at me um, that maybe I haven't had a bad situation not enjoying the conversation, but right. I enjoy having the conversation because to me, it's like, it's almost like an each one teach one. It's like at the very release in terms of my impacts and the things that I can do personally, while I can always do things while I'm like, I'm supporting black businesses. I'm helping to build black businesses. I'm helping to work with other people doing investments. I'm trying to do a bunch of things that hopefully in my mind, I think at the very release, if I see en enough young black people getting money, in my mind, young as anyone below the age of 75, if I see enough young pe black people getting money, hopefully that effect will trickle down over time. So it might not be in my lifetime or my kid's lifetime, but hopefully eventually, if there is still America in my grandkids' lifetime, that they'll be able to be able to uh, prosper and enjoy the fruits of that tree that has been planted in my generation. But in terms of being burdened, I've talked to people who do feel like it's a burden. I don't agree and I don't see it as a burden on my side, but I do understand why people can see it as a burden, especially when you talk about that situation, but they don't change in any way, shape or form in terms of how they're interacting or how they're 
doing anything or they're just listening, but they're not taking action on anything that they're listening to. Do you ever feel that these kind of conversations, like in order to see them, see individuals, you know, change interaction, do you ever feel like there's a, there's a need for a stipulation or say like, you know, I'm, I'm open to have this conversation, but I, I would require you to do some uh, labor on on behalf of it, not just the listening aspect, but are you willing to maybe do some work or consider how your actions are changed? Do you ever feel like you need to set boundaries or stipulations like that before having these kind of conversations? Or would it be beneficial? I haven't done it before, but it might be beneficial. Again, it can be a, a test to see how dedicated are you actually to learning and doing better and being better. But um, who knows? It could be a, also a bit of an eco exchange. And it depends on who you're talking to. If you're just talking to like a general white liberal, maybe a, a white centrist, maybe we'll have to be able to add that as a stipulation. Um, mm-hmm. If you're talking to a white conservative, I feel like you'll be a, a lot harder pressed to be able to get them to actually be actionable. However, I could be wrong, so I don't want to stereotype it on that. And if you're talking to someone of another minority group, maybe a Latino or someone who's Asian, someone who has a completely different different lived experience, not saying that they haven't had to deal with any issues growing up, but they might just have a different lived experience, especially when you start introducing different class levels to all of it too. Um, there might have to be a little bit of an equal exchange saying, hey, this is my lived experience in terms of how I lived, but also tell me how have you found things or how have things impacted you in terms of your where you're coming from? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I, I only say that because I, I can think of a few individuals specifically where based on conversations we had, it felt like not only was the emotional labor the so intense for me, it felt like they gained a perspective, but I feel like they left without the intention of actually implementing anything beyond that. It felt like I did all this work and maybe nothing was really gained from it or better yet, it just maybe there needs to be that intention to continue the conversation afterwards because it's not a scenario, it's not a thing where it can be fixed or nothing can be fixed or changed in one sitting. So I feel like as much as I'm thinking a stipulation or an expectation, it's more of a, well, can we continue this later? Can we continue having these conversations later? I think that, you know, what I, I face lately is that there are times where I want to either shout on the board of social media, or I want to like yell at someone directly about a certain topic, but I recognize that both that is only alleviating a, an immediate frustration, but also I, ri- I run the risk of, I run the risk of, you know, alienating someone else. So there are a handful of people who, you know, might have been considered friends or allies that, you know, the, it might've been the continuous, uh, you know, guilt or the continuous mentioning of things or not be, being able to appreciate when they, they are aware. There is a lot of self-awareness that, you know, it's just kind of, for from my perspective it felt like they were pandering to me like do you want me to thank you or award you for recognizing these things it feels like you're trying to you know seek validation from me and you know i i i feel as if i may have chased them off because i was not i won't say i wasn't fair but i was more 
confrontational no just just critical i was critical of what their intentions were and what their uh whether they were actually as genuine as what their words were saying that's it for another episode of give and take with g allen thank you again to jamal for contributing for g allen for everything he does in front and behind the camera and to you for listening Follow, rate, review, give and take with G. Allen wherever you listen to podcasts. Give us five stars. If you give us four stars, I'm glad to believe you're a hater, and I know you're not. Until next time, peace.